The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about tech stocks. My guest is Barron's Deputy Editor, Alex Ewell, who oversees our tech stock coverage. Welcome, Alex. It's been a while since we've been together on Barron's Live. It has, Lauren. Yeah, good to be here. Good to have you. So, The NASDAQ has had a nice little rally since we last talked on the program about a month ago. The index is up about 1,000 points by my calculations, or about 8%. And oddly, the NASDAQ and tech stocks have been rising since the Fed finally pulled the trigger and raised interest rates in mid-March. Higher rates typically are bad for growth stocks, and that's most tech stocks. So how do you explain the NASDAQ's strength in the face of this? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, certainly for the last what, year, year and a half, it feels like we've been having this conversation that there's been this very clear inverse relationship between yields and um, tech stocks, you know, on days when yields were rising, tech stocks were falling. And we saw that each time tech got in trouble, um, you know, when it had its uh, little short-lived problems uh, last year, we hit a correction. It was as yields were, 10-year yields were approaching 2%. Similar thing happened, um, this this year, except this time we got a real bear market down 20% at one point uh, for the NASDAQ. Yeah, that hurt. <laughs> that was not nice. And it was, again, right as yields were sort of approaching and this time crossing 2% on the 10-year. But then something sort of, as you pointed out, funny happened um, right around about a week before the Fed's um, March meeting where they were finally ready to you know do this first rate hike invest something, something sort of switched whereby investors either decided, okay, this was now priced in, you know, sort of a, a buy, a, a sell, um, sell the news kind of moment in, 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 in reverse. But once the, once the Fed started raising rates, it kind of freed up investors to start buying tech again. Now, maybe this is just a bit of a, of, of a dip buying. Um, there's still obviously tech is still hurting, still down significantly on the year, but up a good bit, as you pointed out, um, in the last month, um, despite the fact that rates are what now 2.3, for the 10 years. So I, maybe that pattern has finally broken. And then I, I, I would say, though, that long term, these two things are not mutually exclusive and that um, there have been periods. I was just looking at some of the charts. There have certainly been periods where where tech and the NASDAQ, um, when the NASDAQ can do well, even as rates are rising. Um, and I think for tech investors, we better, they better hope that's the case because, um, you know, it's unlikely. Rates are going to be rising a lot, aren't they? I think rates have a, you know, we're going to be in this for a long time. So if you, if you have any hope in, in, in the NASDAQ and tech, you're going to have to kind of get comfortable with that, with that dynamic. So, but, but I think that's good news as far as, um, as tech stocks go, that we've seen a breaking down there, at least over the last few weeks. Well, so far, it seems to me it's been a a sell the rumor, buy the news event. Right. 
exactly. When it comes to interest rates, we'll see what happens going forward. Yeah. So Larry Fink's annual letter to CEOs came out today, and everybody is talking about the threat to globalization, which is one of Larry's key topics. Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, for those who don't know. I can't help thinking about what deglobalization might mean for technology. It can't be good, in my view, given our reliance on Taiwanese semiconductors and China's love of Apple phones, just to give you two examples. What's at stake here if, in fact, we are moving to a less globalized world? Yeah, so I would never want to uh, kind of dispute anything that, that Larry Fink had to say, and but I think this... I. I think the globalization um, issue, the end of globalization, if, if that's what we want to call it, is is massive. Um, I, I'm not sure things don't still revert to uh, a more globalized, more normalized sort of state in the coming years. And, and hopefully we'll find ways to, to move beyond what's going on, um, the tragedy in, in Ukraine right now. But I think we need to become far more aware and far more prepared for the fact that this new world, uh, that borders are are back in a, in a very real sense. And when you think about certainly what how tech has grown, um, there really haven't been any borders in, in that sense. Um, we've been talking about in the newsroom, the fact that the chip, chip manufacturing is essentially nowhere you know, it, it, it's all in Asia, right? Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing designs pretty much or, or makes, not designs, but makes the world's, all of the world's important chips. Um, and that gives China potentially this huge amount of leverage, right? It was very easy for us um, as, a, as, a, as a, the West to push back with sanctions on, on Russia. Um, and it's not going to, as, as people have said, it will not be so easy to do something similar if, you know, God forbid, China decides that it's gonna, going to um, try to try to take Taiwan. Um, that is a really, really scary situation from a tech supply chain perspective um, because of, of the semiconductors. Um, right. And in terms of China and, and the iPhones, it's, I would, you know, it's not just, of course, that China has become a huge market for for selling iPhones. It's that all of the iPhones are made there. And that's obviously not lost on China as a point of leverage when it comes to if if things play out the way they have with Russia and Ukraine, if things play out that way in in Asia and in, with China, we're in a really we're in a really tough spot. And, um, you know, I think Larry Fink is probably trying to raise that awareness. Uh, interestingly, we've talked on this call before and uh, about Intel and its importance. Um, right, as a strategic asset for America. A strategic asset for America and really maybe for, for investors because of that. I mean, Intel is the only other company at this point that can really fabricate chips at scale. And they've had huge problems. And that's why this, in terms of their own manufacturing, that's why the stock has really struggled. But I just think... Um, Intel is going to increasingly be seen as, as that strategic asset. Um, and they're, they're now talking about how they're helping Europe and doing more of their um, manufacturing in Europe. They're building plants in the U.S. I think they, I think they are crucial and, and, and still very underappreciated. Uh, I would point out, interestingly, that, that Intel is up 5.5% today. And I don't think it's uh, a coincidence with the, uh, given the deglobalization talk spurred by uh, Fink's letter.
That's an interesting observation, Alex. I don't know whether Larry's right or not. We're going to have to see, but um, seems a little difficult to run history backward. Yes. Well, Russia's trying. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes this all so crazy, right? Is all of these assumptions, we have to sort of almost start to retest them and, and ask, um, and ask what if. Well, for what it's worth, I get skeptical when everybody is talking about one thing and everybody today is talking about deglobalization. So I have to think perhaps the contrary view, it's not going to play out that way. That, yeah, that's fair. And and I guess the pushback on that would be, though, but until today, was anyone talking about it or were, were we talking about it enough? So you're right. There's always that point at which uh, it becomes mainstream and then you have to sort of wonder if it's overdone. But I think probably for, for several years, at least on the chip side, we were not paying enough attention to how reliant, um, and this is more from a policy, American policy standpoint, right? But how reliant we had become on other countries for this vital uh, asset of, of semiconductors. As you say, Intel up 5% today. Follow the market, folks. Yeah. So moving on, next topic, Alex. Amazon has closed on its $8.5 billion acquisition of MGM, the storied movie studio. What does this deal mean for Amazon and its stock? And do you think it's still subject to regulatory scrutiny? Yeah, I would I would put this in two in two sort of buckets, right? I think for Amazon and its stock, it doesn't mean a lot. It it speaks to Amazon's kind of continued strategy of, of building out content, which is a small thing for the company to, you know, not going to move the needle on the stock. Uh, maybe it helps build its prime kind of flywheel effect. The more important prime gets, the better e-commerce does. Um, and then sort of that cycle continues. So I think it's, it is important for Amazon to, to have a better set of content given all the competition and MGM and its ownership essentially of James Bond and a few other films mm -hmm. will help them. But this is not, you know, this is not massive. This is not like uh, Disney buying, buying all the Fox content. Um, it's a fairly bolt on acquisition though. It came with a, a hefty price tag. Um, I think equally important for Amazon, I would just say from a content perspective, is their move into into live sports, I think, um, which is really ramping up now. So starting um, next year, they'll have the exclusive on Thursday night football games. Uh, Al Michaels is moving from NBC to Amazon uh, to start covering those games and getting paid an insane amount of money to do so. So they are really pushing into live sports. I think that's probably a big deal. Um, didn't didn't our colleague Jack Howe write that story about four years ago? Yeah, sports. He's so ahead of things. Well, sports it does. Sports has been the glue for the the cable package. It was the only thing that until recently you couldn't recreate outside of cable. Right. Um, so as sports now starts to get unbundled as well. It, it, it will be the, the, the kind of the bear case on cable was that once sports came out the way everything else did, that was it. So this is now happening. We'll have to see what happens to the cable bundle. Um, but certainly if, if you're getting NFL now on Thursday night on Amazon through Prime Video, it's one less reason perhaps to have your, your cable package because the NFL is pretty much the, 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 the one must watch piece of content that we still have uh, on, on TV. Um, so I would, I would definitely say watch that. And then just one more point on the live TV streaming front. One thing that's really interesting here, we can talk a little bit more about streaming if you want, but uh, Amazon is moving into live sports streaming. Apple TV is moving into live sports streaming. They're going to be doing live uh, major league baseball games every Friday night. 
uh, starting this year. The one company that's still been kind of off to the side when it comes to live sports and really live events at all is Netflix. So the pioneer of streaming has kind of fallen behind when it comes to, to live sports and they don't do any live stuff on their on their platform. So that's going to be really interesting to watch um, and to see how that how that plays out. That's um, pretty ironic. It is. And I'm not entirely sure. Certainly Netflix is not, um, you know, averse to spending significant amounts of money on content. Um, the NFL is very expensive, but Netflix is spending, what, 15 to $20 billion a year on content. So presumably they could afford the NFL if they wanted to. So it, 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 it um, I think this will come up uh, increasingly. Analysts are asking the question more about Netflix and whether they should be making this move as well. And, and it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I bet I, they're asking this at Netflix too. Yeah, well, uh, presumably. And they're pretty confident in their positions and have good reasons for what they do. Uh, the same question is brought as, uh, around advertising as well, which Netflix continues to to avoid, and and, and analysts are increasingly pushing that question: Why don't you offer an, a tier with advertising? Um, so, so some good, some big questions for um, for Amazon for Netflix right now. I, just to get back to the MGM Amazon thing, though, because I think the bigger story from that deal is the fact that we had said that that. Um, merger was a real important test case. And others had said this as well, was a really important test case for this idea of big tech regulation, right? The FTC um, and Lena Khan, the, the new chair chairwoman there, has really made a big deal about the fact that Amazon and big tech in general needed this new set of regulatory, we needed a new kind of regulatory framework um, or thinking to find a way to regulate big tech. So here we get this test case of Amazon buying MGM for eight and a half billion dollars. And what happens is um, it goes through. And, you know, ultimately the FTC doesn't approve, didn't approve the deal, but by not, by letting. And not uh, challenging it. Right, but by letting a certain, and they had asked for more information on it, but by letting a deadline pass this past month, it, 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 they basically allowed it to happen. I think it's really, I think it's a really, it's really important. Now, you could argue that MGM, that Amazon is not dominant enough in content and video that it would have been challengeable anyway. But just allowing a massive company like Amazon to get bigger in anything tells us that there is still, it is, it will still be a challenge to regulate Amazon, and that it, it, the regulators and the the administration and are not fully on board yet with. Um, with regulating big tech. And I, I think it's, um, I think it will, it does send the message that, okay, you know, to the big five tech companies, you can still do some amount of consolidation. You can still do some deals. And until recent, until this deal, I think that was a real open question. We haven't mm -hmm. seen a lot of MA. So um, I, I don't, you know, I think it tells us that the, the, the regulatory threat to big tech remains possibly overblown. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. Europe is moving ahead quickly with its own regulatory uh, legislation. This, uh, this thing called the Digital Markets Act is, is going to go into effect, I believe, this week or is going forward this week. And that will be a real change for how Europe regulates big tech. But in the U.S., um, you know, we're still kind of nowhere on this, on this. Well, it's something to watch, but I think the administration has its hands full with quite a few other things. I think, that's, I think that's definitely part of it. And I would argue that the Nasdaq's 
sell-off um, makes raises the bar a little bit for regulating big tech, right? If, if, if it's much easier and, and to find a politically expedient way uh, to regulate these companies when stock the stock market their stocks are getting higher and higher. But when you right. take 15 to 20 percent off their stocks, it might be a little bit more difficult to say, oh, well, we need to regulate them. I think that's a fair point. Also, Europe may always be ahead of us. It's a much more regulatory regime. And they're not European companies, right? Right. <laughs> like, that, so. That's for sure. So yes. you mentioned streaming, and that's where I want to go next. You've covered the media business for a long time, in addition to the tech business. And streaming seems to be where they're linked. And just think about the Oscars for a moment, which will take place this weekend, and the number of movies released on streaming platforms only that are now up for awards. This, to me, is a bit of a revolution. It's like goodbye Hollywood and hello virtual Hollywood. Yeah. How, do you think, how do you think investors should think about that change? Yeah, well, so a lot is happening there, and we're actually going to have a lot uh, more on that in uh, Barron's uh, this weekend. So I will try not oh, to, good. We'll try not to give away too much. Um, but yes, the Oscars this weekend are a big moment for streaming. Um, you know, streaming, I think, has already done quite well, kind of from a critical acclaim perspective in the TV world. And now as they've stepped into, as Netflix and others have stepped into movies, it's really getting acclaim on the, on the film side as well. Netflix is nominated for 27 Oscars this weekend. Wow. Um, they still have not won a best picture. They, Netflix has, has did quite well on the nomination front of the Oscars last year as well, but they still have not won a major award in sort of the, those major categories, right? Like best film, best director, best overall best actor, best actress. I do not think they've won any of those awards yet. So this could be a big moment for Netflix. Um, um, and what's interesting too, is that because of the pandemic, the rules have changed a little bit about, um, who's eligible for an Oscar it, for years, the Academy pushed back on, um, streaming awards because they said your film had to be in a movie theater, a physical movie theater. I think that's been changed at least temporarily through the pandemic, which opens the door for more of Netflix films, um, which have never been shown in a theater, for instance. And once changed, it's hard to imagine it going back. Well, so that's a that's a really big question. Um, it is. Uh, I mean, you could ask the same question about movie theaters in general. So what's interesting to me here on the streaming side is that Hollywood has officially embraced streaming. Um, but it's coming at a time when Wall Street is asking more and more questions about streaming. So it's sort of been this reverse uh this, re this, this reversal because um, Wall Street was the one most responsible for helping to build up Netflix, right? They were, Netflix lost Right, it was a darling stock. It was a darling stock. It lost money for years. It built itself through lots of, um, uh, you know, bond offerings and such. So Wall Street, you could argue, made this company happen. And now the Netflix stock is really actually, when you look at it, has not done very well. For three years, it's basically gone nowhere. It had this pandemic pump, bump in the middle there, but it's come back right back to where it was pretty much three years ago. So it's been dead money for three years, which I find fascinating. Um, Time to take it out of the fangs? Well, yeah, it always was a little bit of a strange one in those things because just size-wise, it is still so much smaller than all the others. So yes, I think it, it probably... Um, I've heard people say Netflix should be replaced by Nvidia in the things. There you go. It's a it makes it easy. Just uh, and, and for an, I think that makes a lot of sense. Nvidia is right up there with the other 
big tech companies now in terms of market value. So I'll, I'll go with that. That makes sense to me. All right. Um, so let's talk about NVIDIA for a minute, though. The company had an investor event this week. I, I can't believe we just segued so smoothly into that. But <laughs> I didn't plan it. NVIDIA had an investor event this week. What was the big takeaway there? It's been a very popular company in stock. Yeah. And, uh, and NVIDIA is up 8% today. Um, uh, you know, I think um, I think the big takeaway is around the fact that, you know, they just are continuing to push into artificial intelligence. Um, this company that for years was about making graphics processors for computers has found ways to just, and we've talked about this, but to get into every trend out there, they're, they're doubling down now on selling both graphics, uh, these graphics processors along with software to kind of create these killer artificial intelligence apps. They have become the big play on um, the future of, of autonomous cars. They talked a lot about that at their, um, at their investor day this week. Uh, and they're starting to sign up more and more um, partners there. So um, that was sort of the big takeaway. And, and I think, uh, oh, and then, and then, the biggest takeaway, uh, literally, is that they're now talking about a total addressable market of a trillion, a trillion dollars through all through their various uh, initiatives um, in AI, self-driving, chip making. Is that like the whole world is their market? The whole world is their market. So you know, I'm always skeptical of these sort of TAMs or total addressable markets, but um, but that's what they talked about at their investor day this week. Interesting. So moving on, Adobe also had news this week. The company reported earnings. Yeah. Not so great. Tell us what happened with Adobe and what yeah. it means for the stock. Yeah, so a couple of things on Adobe. First of all, I think Adobe is like maybe the most underrated um, tech company and, and software company out there. Um, and, you know. What do you mean by that? Well, just from in terms of how they've been able to remake themselves as this sort of legacy company that sold creative software to some design professionals, right? A very niche product in Photoshop. And just, they've essentially turned it into this massive subscription-based platform that now sells creative software in addition to marketing software. Um, and they've really become a force in the world of software. And I don't think they fully get credit for that transformation. Um, and the stock has just been, you know, a, a massive winner. Uh, it, it has come off, but it's up 237% over the last five years. So I just, I think, you know, it, Adobe is, is really interesting. Um, its earnings this week are also particularly interesting because it's kind of been the, uh, most of the tech earnings season ended well before, you know, all of our, the, the, the world's latest troubles in, um, in Europe. Right. So we haven't had tech companies really talking about um that at all because they were done with earnings by um, early to mid February or you know late February before all this happened. Adobe happens to be on this different fiscal year, so they always report later. And so they yesterday, uh, they this week did talk about um, Russia and Europe, and I think it's interesting. Um, they they specifically called out seventy five million dollars in lost sales um, in Russia this year. You know that's still not nothing huge, but it's interesting. And then um, I was talking to our colleague, Eric Savitz, about this. And Eric pointed out that they have said that in their current quarter, which they weren't reporting, but they were willing to talk a little bit about, I guess it's the, I think the latest month, um, they have started to see some softness in the European market broadly in terms of sales. Interesting. So, so I think that's probably something to watch. Um, 
why, you know, our, our, they sell a lot of this marketing type software on a subscription basis. So our companies in Europe pulling back a little bit on that spend, that may be significant um, and, and something to watch, especially coming into this next earnings season. Where well, it makes me it makes me think that all of the next quarters or, or all of the current quarters earnings reports ought to be watched carefully because we're going to learn an awful lot about what the impact of the war has been on multinational companies. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, it's, we can we can more easily quantify and think about what companies pulling out of Russia means. But it's really, as you know, much bigger than that. Um, it's all of Europe and it's obviously the supply chains and it's rising costs and it's energy. So, yes, you're right. I think that is going to be a, a huge topic. Now, hopefully we'll be in a better place by the time earnings kick off in a few weeks. But um, but I don't know. So I think you're right. It'll be a, a very big story uh, to watch. Well, the quarter is ending next week, and we'll start to get results in about a week and a half after that. And yeah. um, I see a story we should be writing, Alex. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a good one. Okay. Let's move on to some listener questions. We've got some good ones coming in. Speaking of fangs, Martin asks, what are your thoughts on Facebook? Do you think Facebook can get its mojo back? Is it still a long-term holding or a short-term trade? Interesting question. Yeah, good question. And we've uh, spent a lot of time talking about uh, Facebook uh, or meta platforms of late because mostly because it is just a pretty much dirt cheap stock at this point, right? I mean, it trades at like 15 times next year's earnings. Uh, for a big tech company that's still growing, that is that is very cheap. So does that mean the bad news is priced in at this point and you, people should be buying on the dip and, and and then holding. And that gets to the question, short-term trade or long-term hold. I think, um, you know, maybe surprisingly, I think maybe it is a short-term trade for that reason, because at this point, any good news, because of how cheap the stock is, will probably give you uh, a pop. I, I am not sure, though, that I would call Facebook at this, uh, Meta at this point, a, a long-term hold. The company just has so many issues um, that they're facing on every front from advertising, from regulatory. I mean, we, we can say- What do you think is the biggest issue at Facebook? Um, probably the biggest issue is the fact that they ultimately are talking about losing attention to some degree, um, right? So you have TikTok. We can, we can worry about advertising and the privacy stuff. Apple has made it harder for, for advertisers to track users on their phones, which makes- uh, Facebook advertising um, less valuable, but they're but fixed. Then users but deserve the platform. Exactly, but that could probably be fixed at some point. You know, with some, they could find ways to retract users again or do other things. But right, if people are losing or leaving the platform, if Facebook and its other um, its other you know offerings, mostly Instagram, are losing attention to TikTok and and, and other courses, that is a kind of an existential threat, right? And I, um, I think I, so. I think it's something to worry about. And I think investors are not worried about it. You know, it used to be that none of the not, that bad news, which Facebook had plenty of for years, didn't really move the stock, or if it did, it very quickly recovered. That hasn't happened this time. Um, and I think for good reason. So, you know, we, we've had a debate in the newsroom about whether this is a stock should be a core holding and whether this is a stock to hold, especially given how cheap it is. I um I would be I am fairly skeptical around Facebook right now and I think they have so many problems they don't have many friends to help them yes they're making this massive pivot to the metaverse maybe that's a genius move from Mark Zuckerberg or maybe it's a desperate move because they have they realize how much trouble they're in 
we won't know for a while, but they do have Instagram and that- They do have Instagram and which is, you know, certainly better than their core Facebook offering, but even Instagram seems to be getting hurt right now from TikTok. You know, it's interesting among the large tech stocks, Facebook seems to be the only one that is truly under threat of users leaving the platform. It's hard to imagine users abandoning Apple or Microsoft, for instance. Or, or Google search for that matter. Um, for sure. So I think um, I think that is true. It's a more it's potentially we, we could learn a more fickle kind of ecosystem. Absolutely. So let's talk about Apple for a moment. We have had a question about that. We usually do. Steve asks, Apple stock has done better than other tech stocks. Why is that? And do you think there's more downside ahead before it can go higher? Or do you think it will just keep marching up from here? Yeah, so good question. Um, last, I'm just going to double check this, but last I looked when we started, Apple was uh, in positive territory for what would be the eighth straight day. I mean, yeah, it's still up today. So it's on an eight day run um, of gains. Uh, it's up like 10 or 11% during that period. None of the other big tech companies um, have that. They, they've all fallen at least once or twice during that period. So Apple is doing quite well right now. This is not a surprise to, to, to me. We've actually been rather bullish on, on Apple in, in Barron's. We've talked about the fact that it had been holding up this year. While it had fallen for sure, um, it had been holding up better than other tech companies. Uh, just to point out, it's down. Uh, Apple's down three and a half percent year to date now, so not 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 terrible at all. I think um, what Apple has going for it now, it does have that threat of the deglobalization that we talked about, in the sense that every iPhone is is assembled in China, so that is a worry. But I think everywhere else, Apple just is um, in a very good position. Right? We've talked a little bit before about how they've increasingly come to rely on services and selling services to customers. So that makes them somewhat recession uh, resistant, I think, for instance, if, if the consumer is in trouble. Um, it's not as much about selling new iPhones anymore. It's about kind of just continuing to sell you on the same services that you rely on every day. And so I think that's been a big boost for Apple, not just in sort of its from its recurring revenue standpoint, but I think in the way investors value the company. And that's that's why you've seen the multiple for Apple, you know, that this is a company that used to trade like a hardware company at like 15 times earnings, and now trades at 30 times earnings. And so the bear case for a long time was, well, that multiple wasn't sustainable. I think we've learned that, that it is sustainable because they're a very different company these days. Um, and then I would just point out, they have made, no one questions Apple on the innovation front, but I think they've still managed to surprise both kind of customers, tech reviewers, and investors on how successful they've been with their in-house um, chips, which now are powering almost every, um, they've, they've, they've switched over to, uh, to every Mac, almost every Mac now has a uh, Apple design chip in it. And they are just running, you know, they're running circles around Intel's chips in terms of how powerful they are, how efficient they are. And so it's really turned Apple into an even more of a force um, in, in, in the PC and desktop world. And, and that's been a surprise, I think. Dare I ask where those chips are made? They are made by Taiwan Semi, as far as I, uh, <laughs> as far as I know. Right. Pointing up the problem that you discussed quite, quite a bit earlier. Yeah. So last question from Stan, maybe you can give 30 seconds to each as we're running out of time. He wants to know your thoughts on Roku and your thoughts on Google. Hate to give them short shrift, but. Oh, this is like the uh, the speed round then. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
So Roku, interesting. We talked about streaming. Um, Roku has kind of you know moved from a hardware model where they sold you the the hardware to make streaming possible to becoming more of an advertising play. I think advertising and streaming is really challenged. Advertising is not particularly customer friendly. No one really wants the advertising. Yes, it's good because it can lower the cost of what you have to pay for your content. Uh, we talked a little bit, though, about how why Netflix has avoided it. And, and I think ultimately that's the right answer for a customer is to find a way around advertising. So I think Roku is challenged for that reason uh, because they're so advertising driven. Um, Google, uh, we mentioned before how in, uh, kind of sticky Google is. As much as Facebook is, is um, dealing with advertising problems and tracking its users, Alphabet just hasn't shown any of those problems, largely because you don't need to track an, a Google user to serve advertising to them because they're giving you all the data you need. Every they time. tell you what they're interested in. Exactly. And it's, it's kind of a perfect business model in that way. So um, to me, Alphabet is, is that maybe not the short-term trade, but the long-term hold. All right. And with that, with that, we'll end things. That's, that's certainly a sharp sentiment like it. Okay. Anyway, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in and thanks for your great questions. Please join us again tomorrow on Barron's Live. Warren, Vald Warren Valdmanis, a partner at Two Sigma Impact, will speak with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz about why companies should focus more on creating good jobs and how to do it. Sounds like an important call. Thank you again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.